Thank you for listening to the Calvary Monterey podcast. Please visit calvary.com to learn more about our church. And visit nateholdridge.com for additional Bible teaching from our lead pastor, Nate Holdridge. Teaching today is our lead pastor, Nate Holdridge. All right, good morning, church. Great to see you guys today. Let's take out our Bibles and turn to uh, Exodus chapter 2 today. Exodus chapter 2. Last week we started a study in the book of Exodus, fairly fast-paced study through Exodus. And today we're in Exodus 2, 11 to chapter 3, uh, verse 12. Uh, if I haven't met you before, my name's Nate. I'm the lead pastor here. I'd love to say hello to you and meet you after the service. I'll be in the Welcome Center. So if you've got any uh, questions or would just like to say hi, I'll be there. Uh, let's pray for our time in the Word, though, this morning and commit it into God's hands. Lord, we come to you today. We thank you for the book of Exodus, all that it's meant, uh, both originally and in the subsequent generations, and the way that you've spoken to your people time and time again uh, from this book. And we ask, Lord, that you'd speak to us from it this morning, uh, Lord, that you would teach us uh, about the kind of person that experiences your powerful work of exodus in our lives. So, Lord, we pray for that. We ask that you do it as we look into your holy word. We thank you in Jesus' name. We pray together. Amen. Okay, in our first uh, study of Exodus last week, uh, we saw God working behind the scenes, didn't we? We, we? we saw how the people of Israel, over 400 years of relative peace in Egypt, had suddenly begun experiencing the brutal nature of captivity and slavery under the hand or the disfavor of Pharaoh at that time. But we saw how God was working steadfastly in Israel, even though, uh, Kevin, I'm a little too, uh, there's a little pingy up here. Uh, even though the people of Israel were being oppressed, uh, they were still growing. They were multiplying as a people. Uh, God said in Genesis chapter one that we should be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And that's what, exactly what was happening to the people of Israel, the Hebrew people while well, they were there uh, in Egypt. God was behind the scenes. Not only was God prospering them in the midst of their slavery, but we thought about how God was preparing them for exodus while they were in that slavery. As long as things were peaceful in Egypt, the people of Israel would never want to leave Egypt. So God needed to get them to the place where they wanted to depart, where they longed to depart. And we're going to actually see uh, in this passage today a moment where they confess to God, we, we need rescue, we need to get out of here. But not only was God preparing the people of Israel, in our passage today, what we're going to look at is we're going to see how God was preparing not all of Israel, but he was also preparing a person. And that person that God was preparing was this man, Moses, who would be the figurehead of God's deliverance. Now, we looked at Moses' birth last week, but he had to go through a process in order to become a man that God could use. As the prince of Egypt, God looked into his heart. He looked the part from the outside looking in. In fact, in one sense, you could say that uh, Moses looked a lot like Joseph at the tail end of the book of Genesis. He was a Hebrew man in a position of Egyptian authority and power right up next to Pharaoh. So some of us might have even, if we didn't know the book of Exodus, we might have thought, all right, the book of Exodus is going to be really short. It's 
gonna be like two or three chapters long. There's slavery and captivity, then Moses is born, grows up in Pharaoh's household, and then has a little chat with Pharaoh and says like, hey, these are my family members, we gotta stop treating them like this, and then problem solved and peace and prosperity flows. Uh, but what we know is that God had to perform surgery on Moses' heart. And we would expect that this surgery or this process would have to happen to Moses based on everything else that we discover in the Bible. In the New Testament, for instance, when Jesus told the parable of the two sons, it was the prodigal son who'd blown everything, who at the end of the story got a relationship with the father. Uh, in Samaria, when Jesus visited it, it was the woman who was on her seventh husband who discovered Jesus. In Jesus's disciple group, his group of 12, it was the biggest loudmouth and the biggest failure who got the keys to the kingdom to open the gospel to the Gentile world in Peter. And in Jesus's Sermon on the Mount, it's the poor in spirit who get the kingdom it's those who mourn that are comforted, and it's the meek who inherit the earth. But that's not just a New Testament concept, it's an Old Testament concept as well. In fact, if you've read the book of Genesis, which led up to, or is the prologue to the book of Exodus, you'll discover that the younger son is always chosen over the firstborn son. The barren woman is the one who becomes eventually, through God's providence, the mother of nations. And later in God's book, we discover that it's the forgotten son of Jesse who became the greatest king of Israel in King David. So the evidence biblically tells us that we should expect that the kind of people who experience God's exodus are humble outsiders who fear God. And at this point where our story picks up today, Moses is none of those things. Moses is the proud prince of Egypt. Moses is the ultimate insider who has been adopted as Pharaoh's grandson. He does not yet display the fear of the Lord. So in our passage, God is going to surgically repair his man. And as he does, I think what we can be thinking about is, okay, this is the kind of person that God works Exodus in. And my hope is that this last week, as you guys got together with your life groups, as you discussed the book of Exodus, I hope that you thought about that question that I asked last week. What kind of Exodus is God trying to perform in your life? I said to you, the Christian life should be one major Exodus at the beginning where we meet Jesus. And if you haven't met Jesus yet, I'm going to invite you to do so today. But then, you're looking forward to a great and final exodus, the, the resurrection of the saints when Jesus appears and returns for us. But in the meantime, we should be expecting thousands of miniature exoduses as God changes our lives. And so I asked you to consider, what exoduses do you think God might be working in your life right now, things that God is putting his finger on and saying, I wanna pull you out of that so that I can pull you deeper into a relationship uh, with me. I know I've got mine on my list that I want God to give me an exodus from and pull me in to. Uh, they're personal, I'm not gonna share them with you. I'll tell my life group about them, but not you guys, a little too public. But uh, as you think about them in your life, 
today I want you to be thinking, well, this is the kind of person that gets to experience those things that I'm longing for. All right, so the first thing I want to show you from the text before we read it is this. God seems to be looking for those who are humble, those who are humble. Let's read verse 11 to verse 15 together in chapter 2 of Exodus. One day when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and looked on their burdens, and he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. He looked this way and that, and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. When he went out the next day, behold, two Hebrews were struggling together, and he said to the man in the wrong, why do you strike your companion? He answered, who made you a prince and a judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, surely the thing is known. When Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian, and he sat down by a well. Now, we're not given some of the details that we might want to get about Moses at this point. I mean, last week we left off. You might even be saying to yourself, did I miss the chapter on Moses' childhood? Uh, You didn't miss it. It just goes straight from the little baby in the basket being nursed by his own mother to now this man, a a grown-up, an adult. Uh, In the book of Acts, Stephen, one of the first deacons in the early church, He gave a message to the religious leaders of Israel, and in that message, he told us that Moses was 40 years old at this point. 40 years old here, 80 years old when God called him, and 120 years old when uh, he died. So his life was neatly organized into these thirds. So in this passage, grown man Moses, uh, he's shown as conscious of his Hebrew lineage. So he goes out. It says in verse 11, and he looked on his people to see their burdens. While he was there, he saw this Egyptian who was mistreating a Hebrew brother of his. And Moses killed the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. Now, every reader of the book of Exodus at this point knows that that is not going to work, to hide a dead body in the sand. In the first service, I said, because that will never work. You could never hide a dead body in the sand. I said it a little too confidently in the first service, like, like, like I know what I'm talking about, <laughs> you know, kind of thing. I don't know what I'm talking about, but I'm guessing. The, the next day, there was an interaction between two Hebrews who were fighting. Moses realized in confronting them when they responded to him that what he'd done was known. And it was. When Pharaoh heard about it, it says in verse 15 that he sought to kill Moses. So Moses ran for his life to Midian and sat down by a well. Like I said, words are not wasted on Moses' childhood or how he knew he was a Hebrew who told him that. Had he known that his whole life? We don't know. All we get is this man who went out as an Egyptian by class and a Hebrew by race, thinking that he could deliver his relatives. Like I said, as readers, we might begin to wonder if the book of Exodus is just going to be two chapters long. He's going to go out, see injustice, and deal with it, but it comes crashing down so quickly. And like that, Moses is a fugitive in Midian uh, at a well. Now, in this first movement, like I said, we learned that people who experience God's exodus, they're humble. 
The passage does not begin with Moses as a humble man. We're going to see him humbled through this passage and through the chapters to come. But Moses, at this point, felt pretty strong in and of himself. In fact, in that message I alluded to in the book of Acts, that deacon named Stephen said in Acts 7, verse 25, that Moses supposed that all the Hebrew people would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand. He expected when he went out and began dealing with injustices and when he began dealing with arguments between Hebrews, he he thought, you guys know that I am the deliverer that God is going to use. You know that God is going to use me to help you. It doesn't start with Moses as a humble man, but it shows the process he went through to become humble. Now, the episode isn't all negative. Uh, Moses is shown here to have the raw elements of a deliverer. I mean, like God, he saw the pain of God's people and he defended those people. And in killing a single Egyptian, followed by burying that Egyptian in the sand, it's meant to stand as a cheap foreshadowing or substitute of the much better job that God would do when he crushed Pharaoh's army and buried that army in the Red Sea. In a sense, it's kind of like God is saying to Moses, oh, Moses, that was so cute what you tried to do with the one Egyptian in the sand. I'm going to take the entire Egyptian forces that are anti-me and anti-my people, and I'll put an end to them once and for all, burying them in the waters of the Red Sea. But as long as Moses was not broken, as long as Moses was not dependent upon God, that raw material that was there in him could never be used to bring exodus for himself or exodus for God's people. The lesson seems to be that the proud-hearted do not experience God's exodus. Now, we know this is the way of the Christian life, don't we? The way up is to go down. Like Jesus, the Jesus follower must first become humble before God can lift them out of various forms of captivity. As as long as we justify our faults, as long as we defend our sins, as long as we excuse our addictions and tendencies, or as long as we think we've got the power and the strength in and of ourselves to get the job done, we will not experience and live in God's exodus power. James said it this way in James chapter four, verse 10. He said, humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. He will give you exodus. So like practically, think, think about this in the terms of uh, maybe a man who says, you know, I, I know that there are areas in my life I need victory. There are areas in my life that, that I want to overcome, that I believe that God wants me to overcome. Uh, but, but when I am invited to each week gather together with another group of men to, uh, to, to talk about our lives and our struggles, when I'm invited into something like that, I think, that's not for me. I don't want that. That's not going to be what reaches me. I, I don't want to do those kind of things. What you have there is a person who's saying, in my own strength, I will get this job done. But God takes those who are humble and he lifts them up. Uh, I recently got to tour a woodworking shop 
which is like the, I mean, I admire people who are handy. And uh, so it was kind of cool to just ask questions like, what does this do? What does that do? And uh, as I was touring this shop, they showed me this one huge table saw. And uh, they explained to me that it had these special electronics in it where within like three or four notches of the saw blade, if it came in contact with human flesh, there were electronics in it where it would shut the saw down immediately. It would just stop spinning. I thought that's an incredible technology. I'm sure it saved uh, so many digits over the years. And uh, And it just kind of made me think. That's a great illustration for how God works. The second our flesh gets involved, the second that we think we can do it in our own strength, it's like God's power shuts off and we're left to our own devices. Moses thought he could do it in his own strength. He was not yet humble. He was not yet dependent upon the Lord. Okay, the second thing though that I want you to see is that, God gives exodus to people who are on the outside, not the inside. Outsiders, not insiders. Let's read verse 16 uh, and following. It says, Now the priest of Midian had seven daughters, and they came and drew water and filled the troughs to water their father's flock. The shepherds came and drove them away, but Moses stood up and saved them and watered their flock. When they came home to their father, Ruel, he said, How is it? that you have come home so soon today. They said, an Egyptian delivered us out of the hand of the shepherds and even drew water for us and watered the flock. He said to his daughters, then where is he? Why have you left the man? Call him that he may eat bread. And Moses, verse 21, was content to dwell with the man. And he gave Moses his daughter Zipporah. She gave birth to a son and he called his name Gershom, For he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. All right, so Moses, he's run for his life from Pharaoh, and he finds himself at a well out there in Midianite territory uh, in the east. Uh, Just as Adam and Eve were thrust out of the Garden of Eden eastward, Uh, Moses was thrust eastward out of what had been a paradise for him in Egypt. No longer was Egypt a cradle to nurture him or a paradise to indulge him. For Moses, Egypt at this point had become what it was for every other Hebrew on the face of the earth, a total terror. Sitting at that well, Moses' dreams were shattered, and he, he must have wondered what was going to become of his life. Uh, Just then, his day is brightened a little bit when seven young women arrive at the well to water their father's flock. I imagine Moses there all discouraged, feeling down, and then he's like, hello, what's happening here? Now, now everybody who's read the book of Genesis is paying attention at this point because in the book of Genesis, major figures like Isaac and Jacob and Judah, they found their wives at wells or sources of water. And those three men, Isaac, Jacob, and Judah, were the confirmed recipients of the promises of God, including God's promise of a deliverer who would come and set his people free. And now here's Moses, far from home, at a well, 
defending these women from antagonizing shepherds. You know, like I said earlier, clearly Moses had the raw material to be the deliverer that God was looking for. Uh, He stood up to the Egyptian who was abusing a Hebrew. He stood up to two Hebrews who were arguing with each other. And now he stands up to these shepherds who are abusing these seven sisters. Soon in the text, one thing leads to another, and Moses is invited home by their dad, a guy named Ruel, who is also called Jethro later in the book of Exodus. And quickly, he's given Zipporah's hand in marriage, and the story just maintains its rapid pace because right away, the next verse tells us in verse 22 that they had a baby together, a little boy, and they named him Gershom. Gershom means sojourner. Moses gave him that name because he felt that he was a foreigner in a distant land, a sojourner, a a pilgrim, no longer on the inside of the power structure and the world system of his day. Moses was now on the outside of it, far removed from Egypt and its pleasures. And I hope you can see that what has just happened to Moses, what we just read about in Moses' life, is that Moses had his own little miniature exodus before the people of Israel have their big, major exodus. Uh, Israel will eventually leave Egypt. Moses just left Egypt. Israel is eventually going to feel the wrath of Pharaoh after their departure. And Pharaoh wants Moses dead as he's departed. At the waters of a well, God saves Moses' life. At the waters of the Red Sea, God will save the people of Israel. After Israel goes through the Red Sea, Moses has a meeting with a man. You know who it is? A guy named Jethro, also known as Ruel, in this passage. After the episode at the well, he meets with that very same man. And after that meeting later in Exodus, after the Red Sea, when he meets with Jethro, Moses goes up to the mountaintop where he receives the Ten Commandments, which was God's covenant with the people of Israel, bringing them into that covenant relationship with himself. And in this passage, Moses enters into a covenant relationship with this woman named Zipporah through marriage. So in this exodus, in this movement, we learn that people who experience God's exodus, they're often outsiders. Just as Jesus did most of his ministry among the people of Galilee, far outside the religious epicenter of Jerusalem, so Moses was far outside of Egypt as God prepared to deliver his people. He was used to their culture, used to the customs of Egypt, but now he's lonely. He's living with this little family of three out there in the wilderness of Midian. And what about us? If we want to see God perform exodus in our lives, if we want to be set free from the entanglements of the world, we have to come to terms with being outsiders as we walk on this earth. Peter wrote to us in 1 Peter that we should conduct ourselves with fear throughout, he called it, the time of our exile. Have you ever thought about life today for you as a Christian as the time of your exile? You're, you're not always gonna feel that way. There will be a, a moment in time where you're brought home by God, but this now is the time of your exile. Peter went on to say that he would, we should be sojourners abstaining from the passion of the flesh. A, a sojourner, an exile, a pilgrim, a temporary resident. 
And when we feel ourselves this way, uh, we are able to experience God's exodus. But when we feel that we need to be just like everyone else, when we expect to be accepted by the world that we live in, when life outside of Egypt is hard for us to embrace, exoduses will be difficult to come by. I think quite often we care way too much what people think of us as believers. We have to come to a place where we say, you know, I will be different. I will be outside. I will not always be accepted. But we're sensitive to that, aren't we? I had this experience recently at a doctor's appointment. I was going to actually an ENT appointment a few months ago for my vocal cords. And I got there, I did the whole thing, checked in and all of that, and eventually they called my name. There was a nurse at the door, and I think she had like a little protege or apprentice that she was training that day. And they said, you know, follow us, we'll bring you to uh, the room where the doctor will meet with you. And they opened the door for me, and at the center of the room was a, kind of like a, a, a leather-covered uh, chair or some kind of material like that. And uh, they stood at the door, opened it, and I walked in, and I, I sat down, and they said, the doctor will be with you shortly. And as they were closing the door and just looking at me in the eye, I was sitting down, and the interaction of my pants with the chair made a sound that sounded like something else. <laughs> and they just were looking at me and then boom, the door closed. And I was mortified. I mean, it sounded like I had just ripped a big old one in that office. And I'm pretty sure they thought so too because it took about 30 minutes for the doctor to come in there, which I'm pretty sure was like, doctor, you need to wait a little bit for that room. I didn't know what to do. I'm like, do I go out? Do I tell them like, this is not me, it was the chair, a <laughs> crazy chair, you know? It was embarrassing. I'm even checking my own heart. Like, am I telling you guys this story so that word kind of gets out there in the community that it wasn't me, but it was the chair? <laughs> just a funny story to just say, we care so often what people think. And as Christians, we need to come to a place like Moses where, yo, it's okay. It's okay that I'm outside. It's okay that the world system is not mine anymore. It's okay that my life is different. It's okay. As long as you're clutching to being embraced or accepted by the world, you're going to have a hard time experiencing the exodus that God wants you to experience. Okay, the third thing I want you to see, though, is that God... Uh, is looking for people who are reverent or who fear him or respect him. Let's pick it up in verse 23 together of chapter two, and we'll read on into chapter three. It says, during those many days, the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, and God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob, God saw the people of Israel and God knew. We have some anthropomorphic language about God here. In other words, human words being used to describe the divine. He, he knew of the covenant. He was conscious of it. He could never not know it. But what this is saying is like, like he's ready to act. It's, it's time. God is going to do something about what he knows. Now Moses, verse 1, was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian, and he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Oreb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord, verse 2, appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, 
I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. Then he said, do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Now, this is a point where the story, the book of Exodus, really gets going. You know, up, up to this point, we've watched God working behind the scenes. We've felt his presence. We know he's doing things. Uh, but now he's open. He's out in the open air. He's known. He, he, it says at the end of chapter 2, heard his people. He saw his people. His covenant with their ancestor Abraham was at the top of his mind. God knew exactly what they were going through during their years of captivity. And because he knew, it says in verse 1 and 2 that the angel of the Lord appeared to Moses in a flame of fire in the midst of a bush. It was burning, but it was not consumed, uh, making it an excellent picture of what Israel was going through at that moment. They were burning in the fires of Egyptian persecution, but they weren't consumed. They were thriving, and it would be an excellent picture of what was about to happen as the plagues rained down upon Egypt. The Egyptians would suffer, but the Israelites were going to survive and thrive in the midst of the fires of God. Uh, but the question is, who is this angel of the Lord? It says that the angel of the Lord appeared to Moses in the flame of fire in the midst of the bush. Who is this angel of the Lord? If you were to this afternoon go home and just continue reading from this passage onward and get through all the historical books of the Old Testament, you would see this angel of the Lord repeated at various junctures throughout Israel's journey and then once they were settled in the promised land. Uh, he is unlike other angels in that he receives worship and the ground whenever he's present or the area that he's in is considered holy ground. It's a holy space. And when he appears, he often appears not with wings and all of that, but uh, he appears like a common man. Uh, like in the book of Joshua, when Joshua is at the outskirts of Jericho, probably strategizing how to defeat Jericho, he sees a man with his sword drawn, and he confronts the man and says, who are you? Are you for us or are you against us? It's only then that the man identifies himself, and he realizes I'm dealing with the angel of the Lord or the commander of the, the armies or the hosts of the Lord, and he takes off his sandals and he worships God in that moment. So this angel of the Lord has a connection to God himself that is very close but he also holds a resemblance to common man, which leads many people to think of the angel of the Lord as the second person of the triune Godhead, the second person of the Trinity, a pre-incarnate manifestation of Christ. Uh, I'll let you guys argue about it, though, in your life groups. You guys can figure it out together. But however we identify the angel of the Lord, it's clear that in this moment, this episode, Moses was having a massive encounter with God. When he turned aside to see what this burning bush was all about, God called to him, 
Moses, Moses. Then God told him he was standing on holy ground. God told him to act like he was standing on holy ground by taking the sandals off of his feet. And after God announced to Moses that he was the God of his own dad, uh, Amram, uh, he then said, I'm the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And Moses responded to this revelation, it says in verse six, by hiding his face, for he was afraid to look at God. That's That's a demonstration of his reverence for God. And that's what I wanna say. In this third movement we're looking at today, we learned that people who experience God's exodus, they are reverent. In other words, they have a fear of God. They, they respect God. Uh, they know how to pray and live the first line of the, of the Lord's prayer that he taught us to pray. Our, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Highly respected and revered and honored be your name. Uh, years ago, there was a shirt that was floating around uh, youth groups uh, that had a, de- a depiction of Jesus on it. Uh, and underneath was a little tagline that said, Jesus is my homeboy. Jesus is my homeboy. And uh, yeah, I guess that's true. If, if what you mean by Jesus is my homeboy is that Jesus saw that my utter depravity and sin so separated me eternally from the living God and loved me so much that he came to live the perfect and sinless life on my behalf for me and then brutally suffer and die to consume the holy wrath of God into his own body on my behalf and then rise from the grave on the third day. If that's what you mean by Jesus is my homeboy, then yes, he is your homeboy. But usually what we mean by someone is my homeboy is they're just cool with me. They're cool with whatever I do. They're cool with whatever I say because we're casual like that. And what I'm trying to show you through Moses' experience in life is that that is not how he felt about God. On this day, Moses felt overwhelmed by the presence of God. Fire would become a symbol of God's presence for Israel. Mount Sinai would be engulfed with fire that burned the mountain so that smoke began to ascend. The people of Israel would be led by a pillar of fire and a pillar of smoke. And Moses sensed the tremendous weight in this moment of being in God's presence. And so he hid his face out of fear of looking at God. And in the coming pages of Exodus, the people of Israel are gonna discover that God is a holy God and that to approach him, they also, like Moses, would need to take their sandals off of their feet. They would do it not literally, but proverbially by building a tabernacle and offering sacrifices and pursuing a clean and moral and ceremonial life before God. And I think all of this should speak to us on two levels as Christians. First of all, as believers, we get the privilege and honor and glory and praise of celebrating that when we believe in Jesus, the holiness of Jesus is deposited into our little old bodies so that the Father looks upon us and sees the righteousness of his only begotten Son. But secondly, we should recognize in a passage like this that God's holiness and our sin are no joke. They're no laughing matter. We should not be cavalier 
about it. We should guard what we do. We should guard what we say. We should guard what we see. If we do not regard God as holy, we will have a hard time experiencing the exoduses that he wants to win in our lives. You know, later in the book, there will come an episode where God's priests are ordained for the work of the Lord. They will offer a sacrifice. They'll take the blood of the sacrifice and put it on the ear and on the thumbs and on the big toes of these priests. It was a way for these priests to say, where we go with our feet belongs to God. What we do with our hands belongs to God. And what we consume, what we take into the ears or the eyes or the mouth belongs to God. We want to be men who are set apart, consecrated to God in the same way that they would put blood on the candlesticks or the table of showbread or the altar of incense inside of the tabernacle as a way to say, these are instruments set apart for the living God. So these priests were saying, we're under new ownership. We belong to God. And I think as believers, we could stand to have a little more of that understanding of God's holiness, God's perfections, and that we would set a higher bar for ourselves to say, Lord, I want to live a holy and clean life. I want to live a holy and clean life. And sometimes people will tell me things that they're watching or musicians that they're listening to or things that they're consuming and, and doing. And generally, people are pretty guarded around me. I'm kind of like on the record about how I feel about God and holiness and Jesus and all of that. So I can only assume like, if you're cool, just like, not, not like a, a confession. I mean, I, I love that when someone's like, I'm, 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 I don't want to be doing this. I'm struggling with this. That's cool. But I'm talking about like a casual, like, oh yeah, I was doing this. Or I was listening to that. Or I was watching this and I'm thinking, you belong to God. You belong to the Lord. He paid a steep price so that that thing would not keep you banished from your eternal home forever. And so I think it's so important for us to recognize who God is and to say, Lord, I want to live a holy and righteous life. You know, we're a, we're a low church. We're what's called a low church. What that means is we're like, we're like pretty casual uh, but I, I, I mean, I'm up here with sneakers this morning. You know, Riley's got a T-shirt leading worship. You know, people, we're, we're, not, we're not a high church. And, and, and I, I've personally never thought that it's like, I mean, if I thought that if I wore a tuxedo, it would tell you that God is holy, I'd wear a tuxedo up here. But, but, but what's important is what's happening in the heart. If, if you confuse that, if you're like, oh, this is the kind of church where I can bring coffee into the sanctuary, I, I like it. Real casual with God, you know? Don't make that mistake. That's not at all what we're saying. We're saying come as you are and that those aren't really the things that matter in the sight of God, but there are things that matter in the sight of God. And those are the things that we want to say, God, I surrender my life to you. Some people wonder, why am I not experiencing God working powerfully in my life? Why am I not experiencing the exoduses that I'd like to experience? Maybe it has something to do with this, a low view of God too casual of a view of God. See him as he is. Okay, the final thing that I wanna show you before we take communion is that the person who experiences Exodus, they are helped by God. Look at verse seven with me. 
of chapter three. It says, then the Lord said, I've surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings and I've come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And now behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me. And I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppress them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? He said, but I will be with you. And this shall be a sign for you that I have sent you when you have brought the people out of Egypt and shall serve God on this mountain. So Moses had hid his face, but God kept speaking. We just read there. He tells Moses, I've seen the affliction of my people there in Egypt. I know everything. I've heard their cry. And his goal was to deliver them and bring them into the promised land, a land flowing with milk and honey. That means it's a, it's a fertile land. It's a place where livestock uh, flourish, so milk. It's a place where crops grow, so honey. Uh, but the big surprise was God's announcement in verse 10 that he would send Moses to Pharaoh to bring God's people out of Egypt. And Moses, like I said, at this point is 80 years old. He'd been a fugitive from Egypt for 40 years at this point. But God is ready to take this 80-year-old guy and put him back in the game. Uh, but Moses responds uh, a little reluctantly. He says, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? He's not quite as self-confident or self-assured as we saw him at the beginning of the passage. Maybe this is humility, maybe this is fear or unbelief. Uh, either way, God's solution was to assure Moses. He says, Moses, I'm gonna be with you. And he even guaranteed that the mission would be a success because he said, you're gonna come out and on the very same mountain that I'm meeting with you right here, you're gonna worship me as a people. That's where they'd receive the 10 commandments. The promise that God made to him should have been enough. Just a simple statement, I will be with you. And that's what I wanna show you in this last movement is that people who experience God's exodus, God is with them. God helps them in the process. God does not leave us to accomplish exodus alone. He involves himself in our lives. He, he wants to help us in this process. I heard a pastor recently talking about uh, that old analogy that we often use to describe our relationship with God where we say, it's like going to the gas station to fill up the tank. Or maybe nowadays, uh, plugging in the car to charge up the battery. And uh, you know, you kind of go out there and you get depleted and then you gotta fill up the tank again. Uh, but he said, uh, he, he offered a, a different suggestion. He said, perhaps it's a little more like those trains in big cities that are powered by a third rail, an, an electric rail that as long as they're touching that rail, they receive the energy from that rail to go where they need to go. And I think that's a great image because so often we think of it like, oh, you know, it's been a couple of months since I've gone to a night of worship. I need to go to one so I can fill up my tank again. And then I'll just not worship for two months, and then I'll go fill up my tank one more time. That's not what the Lord wants. 
The Lord is there for us every single day. Paul said it like this in 2 Corinthians 3.18. He said, now we see and reflect the glory of the Lord, and the Lord, who is the Spirit, makes us more and more like him, like the Lord, as we are changed into his glorious image. Every day, I'd encourage you to connect with the Lord so that he can change you. All right, so what we're seeing here is that God is the God of Exodus. He's always at work to bring us out of Egypt so that he can bring us into himself. And uh, we thought today about a few things. And uh, you might want to think of these as like baggage that can't be brought on Exodus. You know, when you, when you go to check in for a flight and they do the thing where you got to put your luggage on the scale and uh, maybe you've had that moment where you're going on a big journey, you're going to be gone for a while or whatever, and so you're trying to get as close to the maximum weight as possible, and you put it on the scale, it's like that moment of truth, and you're like, oh no, it's too heavy. What do you have to do? You got to start pulling stuff. It's kind of a game, right? Because you're just putting it in your carry-on, so it's, <laughs> you're going to bring it with you probably, so you're, but you're trying to figure out, what can't I bring? What do I need to let go of and leave? And, and I think here you could probably say it that way. Moses could not bring pride. Moses could not bring a need to be accepted by the world system. Moses could not bring a casual or disrespectful feeling about God. And Moses could not bring self-reliance, and neither can we. But what I want to say as I wrap this up is that all of these elements are found most fully in Jesus Christ. In fact, I could have taught the whole passage this way. Instead of saying to you, this is the kind of person who experiences Exodus, I could have said, hey, you and me in the story, we're back in Egypt. We're enslaved. We're the people who need a deliverer, and Jesus is our Moses, the better deliverer. I mean, after all, he humbled himself much more than Moses did when he identified himself with us by becoming one of us. Jesus was much more of a foreigner than Moses ever was. Moses just went from Egypt to Midian. Jesus went from eternity to earth. Jesus revered God much more than Moses did. He'd come from the very throne room and presence of the Almighty God. And he was assisted by the Father, assisted by the Godhead much more than Moses was. The Spirit having come upon him at his baptism, empowering him for his earthly ministry. Because God saw and heard and knew of our sin, he sent his son. But the thing is, is that if you're in Jesus today, Jesus is trying to reproduce who he is in you so that he can bring you onto that exodus. So let's allow him to do it. Let's allow him to humble us, to bring us out of the world, to be our holy God whom we respect. Let's let him, allow him to help us in this life. Let's be dependent upon him. Amen. Thank you for listening. If you would like more teachings and information about Calvary Monterey, please visit calvary.com. You can also find books, teachings through the Bible, and articles from our lead pastor at nateholdridge.com. Thanks again for tuning in. See you next week.